Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. What's going on, everybody? It's your host, Will Cooper, coming back for a new episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. Hopefully, this episode is either finding you on the way to the deer stand or up in the deer stand, and you are just got some slow time right now listening to the Hunt Stand Podcast. But today's episode, I want to bring on some good friends of ours that we actually met at BHA Rendezvous this past summer. And we're going to get the fellows on over here from GNH Decoys, and we're going to talk about what it has taken to revive a legend. So we're going to get them on here. We're going to talk decoys. We're going to talk, we're going to go down a few rabbit holes, but just want to bring them on and talk about what it takes to do that. So again, y'all, we just want to thank you for tuning in to the HuntStand podcast. If you haven't yet, make sure you have the HuntStand app downloaded. We've got a free version. We've got a pro version and new this deer season, we've got pro whitetail. It's got a ton of different features from a whitetail activity forecast, rut maps, whitetail habitat layer, and there's a lot in there that's deer hunting specific. And so you're going to want that before you head out to the stand. It can help maximize your time in the deer stand this fall so you can be more efficient and better your odds to potentially kill yourselves deer, big buck, whatever you want to get out there. But nonetheless, y'all, we just want to thank you for tuning in to the Stand Podcast, and we hope you enjoy. Well, guys, are y'all ready to get this thing rolling? I'm ready. You bet. All right. Well, gentlemen... First off, just want to thank y'all for hopping onto the Hunt Stand podcast with me today. Can't appreciate your time and just willingness to come on and, you know, shoot the BS with me, man. So first and foremost, Ray and Ben, thanks for hopping on. Hey, thanks for having us. Uh, we really enjoyed meeting you out at, at BHA and you've definitely got a cool product and uh, we're happy to be here today. Absolutely. Well, thanks guys. Appreciate it. So one of the things I like to do to get our podcast started each episode, I like for the guest or guests in this case to give our listeners kind of the 30 foot tree stand view, if you will, of who you are, kind of where you're from and how you got into where you are. So Ray, Ben, doesn't matter who goes first, but guys, give us that 30 foot tree stand view. Yeah. Uh, it's funny that you use that, that, uh, that pun 30 foot tree stand view. We like to call it the, the bird's eye view. We're yep. full of duck puns over here. But uh, I guess I'll let Ben tell about his background and I give you a little bit of background of, of Ben and I's you know, personal connection uh, before Ben logged on. But uh, I I started life uh, in in Houston, Texas, and I'm kind of an adult onset hunter. Uh, I grew up living overseas because my dad worked in the oil patch overseas. And uh, so I fished a lot overseas as a kid. I caught peacock bass long before I ever caught largemouth bass. Uh, but I didn't get to hunt because we couldn't own firearms in those foreign countries. And uh, so I came back to the United States and got my last couple of years of high school done and then went off to college and uh, sort of right after college, uh, went to go work for the Orvis company uh, uh. doing fly fishing stuff because that was that was my bread and butter and had an employee that actually worked for me that said, hey, man, you want to go duck hunting this weekend? And I thought, man, I've never been duck hunting. I should go. And so I said, hey, dad, don't don't we have some old family shotguns or something? And sure enough, we, you know, dad gave me the shotgun and I went out and I went duck hunting. And I thought this is the coolest thing I've ever done. I can't believe I've been missing this my whole life. Uh, it was down in South Texas, uh, at a place that is used to be called Peach Point Wildlife Management Area. Now it's called Justin Hurst Wildlife Management Area. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I was 22 years old at the time, and uh, I'll be 40 this year. So I guess this is my this will be my 18th season if we do math in public. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I loved every second of it. 
I didn't ever dream that I would be in the position that I'm at at GNH decoys. Uh, I left Orvis. I joined the Marine Corps because it was something I'd always wanted to do. Uh, did that for seven years, got out and went to law school and uh, had a pretty successful career as an attorney. And kind of the GNH thing just kind of fell into my my lap. Uh, we knew that that GNH was kind of old and tired and nobody had done much with it. And uh, Buddy and I kind of got the idea to maybe uh, buy the business. And so we tried to buy the business. The owner was still alive and we didn't, Dick Gazalski, the last family owner, we didn't really hear anything from him because he was in poor health. Mm-hmm. And a couple months later, I just punched into the Google machine, you know, Dick Gazalski, GNH decoys and the guy's obituary popped up and he had died three days before. Oh man. And so I called the factory and I spoke to, to Derek Thomas, the general manager. And I said, Derek, what's going to happen with, with GNH? And he said, nobody knows we're all scared. He said, there's no air to take, take on the company. It was a family-owned business for 88 years, you know, passed on from grandfather to son to his son. And uh, so he said, he gave me the lawyer's phone number and he said, you're going to have to call the lawyers. Well, fortunately, I knew a bunch of people at that lawyer's firm. And uh, we started talking and it it took us a year to get closed on the business. It's Mm -hmm. a lot easier to buy something from somebody who's living than somebody who's dead. Uh, But we finally got closed on the sale. And... uh, Pat, December the 15th of last year is when we closed on it. So we have, we have, in fact, today, six month anniversary of uh, us owning GNH decoys. Nice. But uh, we, uh, we've, we put a lot of work into rebuilding the machinery and the equipment in the factory, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of trying to restart the manufacturing capacity. They hadn't produced a decoy in almost two years inside that factory. And uh, we went and hired back as many of the old employees as we could find. Uh, our current employment level sits at, at 26. And then we've brought all kinds of new people to the table that we knew had something good to contribute to help this go for for 88 more years. Uh, and Ben is one of those those new new faces at the table, just like I am. Nice. So what what's your um, exact title now? Is it CEO, um, I guess owner? My exact title is, is president CEO. And to be fair, I only own about this much of it. <laughs> uh, but we're closely held company. Uh, we know everybody. Um, there's no we're not owned by any large private equity groups or anything like that. Cool. Uh, it's a few folks that that I knew and folks that they introduced me to uh, and a, a family in, in Texas uh, that wanted to be involved in the business. And so, uh, you know, we've we've found a way to keep the thing closely held, still completely owned in the United States. And we still manufacture every single one of our products under that one roof in Henrietta, Oklahoma. Love it. I'll man. let Ben give his his backstory on GNH. He's got a unique story, too. Love it. Ben, let's hear it, man. Well, you know, for me, I, I'm an Okie. And I was born and raised within an hour of the factory. Yeah. Uh, never had any, you know, legitimate ties to the business other than knowing it was over there. Mm-hmm. And sometime in high school, you know, I grew up a little more traditional. Dad took me hunting, fishing from the time I could walk. Um, Dad was not a waterfowl hunter. And when I was in high school, a friend of mine was looking for somebody to go on a duck hunt with him and ask me. And, uh, I said, you know, I'd love to do that. I've always wanted to duck hunt, but I don't have any waiters. <laughs> and then he divulged to me that the, the main reason he was inviting me is he knew I had a boat and he needed needed a boat to get where he wanted to duck mm-hmm. hunt. So he said he had a spare set of waiters and I had a little flat bottom boat. So we had a, a partnership right off the bat. And we went on a September morning and there were droves of teal uh, zipping up across this mud flat. Mm-hmm. And I, I just thought that was one of the most amazing things I'd ever been around. And in, you know, 10 minutes of being there, I was hooked as a duck hunter. So, you know, I ended up in college at Oklahoma State uh, pursuing wildlife and fisheries ecology and about halfway planning on being some kind of waterfowl biologist or some kind of land manager, somebody trying to make, you know, the world a better place from a conservation standpoint and and provide more ducks that we could enjoy. Um, But I made a lot more C's than I did A's. And uh, toward the end of my college career, I recognized that some of the other students um, had a better shot at, uh, at getting those kind of jobs. And one thing that I had that others didn't is I was a good communicator. Um, I was also kind of froggy. I wasn't afraid to do some push-ups, or, uh, you know, I was a wrestler in high school. So, it, you know, I was able to handle myself and there's another career in conservation mm-hmm. that, that a lot of times folks don't talk about and that's law enforcement. Yep. And although I never set out to get into law enforcement, uh, it kept kind of circling back to me. And shortly after college, I had done some some work in waterfowl research. I traveled the country, lived in a couple of states, and handled ducks a lot. I never was a top candidate for any of those career waterfowl conservation jobs, 
these these law enforcement jobs kept popping up. And so one day I applied for one. And for a short window of time, I, I became an Oklahoma game warden and I and I still wear that hat. Um, I've, I've been that almost 20 years now. And somehow I never got away from waterfowl. So my time as a game warden was spent in northeast Oklahoma around places where waterfowl hunting is very popular and only continues to grow in popularity. So there for quite a while, I was getting most of my fix of being around, you know, waterfowl and, and conservation and that element, working duck hunters, communicating with duck hunters, yeah. being a part of of committees that had to do with how those areas are managed and, and what access is available for hunters and, and just a whole lot of mouthpiece time. And then obviously quite a bit of in the field time, you know, making contacts and duck blinds, et cetera. And we walked along and just, I don't know, less than a year ago, I was actually hunting uh, with a retired game warden, Carlos Gomez. And he told me that one of his friends had gotten involved and they're going to be owning and operating GNH decoys. And, and to be honest, it was out of pure jealousy <laughs> <laughs> that, that I, that I uh, took opposition to that. I said, why, why are you involved? I'm the duck guy. I, I, you know, I probably didn't spend long enough going on and on about myself and ducks, but I'm pretty into ducks. It's a big deal for me. And so I, I, I leaned on Carlos pretty hard. I'm like, you have to get me in touch with these people. I have to understand uh, who they are. And is there any room for me over there? And, and what he described to me that he was doing, you know, it's perfect, perfect fit for him. But at the time I, I thought, man, they, that company need, you know, the good idea fairy hit me. I, I had all these plans. I said, man, that company needs to do this and this and this and this and this. And somehow Carlos got me an audience with Ray. And, and we, we met and over a dinner and, and with a handshake, I knew I was in the right place. And basically I won't say I begged Ray to let me get involved, but <laughs> somewhere between, uh, you know, begging him and, and holding him down and giving him a noogie until he, uh, I convinced him to let me be a piece of this. Um, here I am. And, uh, Ray told you six months, six months, isn't very long. Um, I've been part of this deal for about four months of that. And we've come a long way already, and we we still have big plans. We're we're hungry, and uh, we're chomping at the bit here. Man, I love to hear it. Yeah, the, the piece that Ben doesn't tell you is that uh, Ben and my wife went to high school together, and they knew each other. And when uh, mm. like a year and a half ago, when we first started hunting GNH, we were trying to figure out how to buy the business. She said to me several times, she said, "I used to know this guy in high school. I think he's a game warden. He is a big time waterfowl hunter. You need to call this guy. He would be a great person to add to your." And I just was so busy and yeah, Maggie. Okay. You know, whatever. And, yeah. and uh, we went, he mentioned, you know, Ben mentions that we met at a dinner. We met at this uh, Delta waterfowl dinner uh, that we were there doing some sponsorship for. And uh, Ben walked up before he even knew who I was. And he saw my wife standing there and he said, he said, Maggie Meshack, that was her maiden name. And he said, Maggie Meshack, what are you doing here? She said, well, I'm married to, married to Ray. So I think, uh, you know, fate, the long arc of fate probably put, uh, you know, Ben and I at, at GNH together at the same time. And like Ben mentioned, it's, it's been a huge success. Um, we've, we've done an incredible amount in six months, a uh, company that hasn't sold decoys to a retailer in over five years. Uh, Ben's put us back in front of, uh, five major retailers in the United States just in the last six weeks. Wow. Uh, so we're, we're very optimistic about the future. Awesome. You know, if you're listening to this and you're not one of those, then, uh, holler at me, give us a call. <laughs> hey, well, I'll drop the information in the description below. Uh, I'll tell them where right. they can find you guys. You know, in, interesting fact about me: I've never gone duck hunting before. Oh All right. boy! All right. You're my you're my target. You're the kind of guy I like to take. Hey, I'm first down, on the list. We can fix that. I'm down here in Texas, so I'm not too far from you guys. We might we'll have to change it up. So, tell me, doesn't matter who, but kind of give us the backstory on GNH decoys and kind of the precedence and, you know, prestige that they had set years ago, starting out as a decoy company. Yeah. So it's a, it's a bold claim for us. And I get nervous sometimes saying these things because I wonder if there's some piece of, of waterfowl history that I don't know, or I don't, I don't understand. Uh, but GNH was founded in uh, 1934. GNH stands for Gazalski and Hutton. And it was founded by John Gazalski and J.B. Hutton. And uh, John Kozalski was a, a man, I think he was born at the tail end of the 1800s. I think he was born in like 1898. I have mm -hmm. his last driver's license. I found it in my desk. And uh, he got an idea about, about the time that, that Franklin Roosevelt signed the Duck Stamp Act. The Duck Stamp Act, in addition to creating 
you know, the whole duck stamp program and creating all the funds for conservation for wetlands across the United States. It also made a number of changes to the way that waterfowl hunting occurred in the United States. And one of those changes was you could no longer use uh, live birds as decoys. They called them call birds. You know, you'd have your own little set of ducks that you'd feed at your house and you'd slip a little loop on their ankle at the beginning of the morning with a weight on it. And you'd pitch, you know, 12 or 15 of them out in front of your spread there. And eventually the ducks got used to being shot over and you could have live decoys. And of course, it was very, very effective. Well, the Duck Stamp Act, you know, part of the conservation movement uh, in the in the 1930s to sort of do something to make waterfowl populations survive because they were in terrible, terrible shape in the 1930s yeah. uh, was to create the Duck Stamp and outlaw a number of practices. Punt gunning became illegal, a few other things mm-hmm. uh, that were harmful to to the waterfowl population. And so John Gazalski got this idea. Well, you know, people like to hunt birds. They're going to need decoys. Not everybody's going to want to make their own decoys. Uh, why don't we make decoys and sell them? And so the first product he came up with, uh, in fact, we have the, we have the patent at our office. First product he came up with was a goose shell decoy, uh, and hard to say, but we're pretty confident that GNH was the first mass producer of decoys in the United States of America. Wow. Uh, so he started with this goose shell product. He made them out of paper mache. I think he needed some operating capital to kind of expand his business. And so he went to his father-in-law. Uh, J.V. Hutton. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, listen, I, you know, I got this idea and I want to do this. Will you partner in this with me? And uh, his father-in-law uh, partnered with him and helped put up some of the capital uh, and didn't just do that. But, you know, we have a number of photos. I think we published one on social media recently of, of old man Hutton making the paper mache decoys uh, in the building that used to be the old sawmill in Henrietta, which is where the company started. Um, you know, J.V. Hutton passed away and John ran the business for a long time. Uh, I found John Gazalski's last duck stamp in my desk a few months ago. As you know, there's all kinds of old stuff Dang. in this building, and we're constantly finding it. I found his old driver's license uh, that expired in 1980, which is the last year that I think he was legally allowed to drive. Uh, it expired in 1980, and he didn't die long after that. It had his 1980 duck stamp uh, taped to the back of it with his signature on it, wow. and paperclip to it were the duck stamps from 79, 78, 77, and 76. Um, so just Damn. very, very cool pieces of, of waterfowl history there. In the, yeah. in, we're talking about the guy who invented the shell decoy, the goose shell decoy, which is now a ubiquitous, uh, piece of, of, of waterfowl gear. Uh, there's a few other things that we lay claim to over the 88 years. Uh, we invented the goose shell. Uh, we were not the first ones to create a, a blow molded decoy or an, mm-hmm. you know, a decoy that was hollow with air inside of it but we were the first ones to do it with high density polyethylene with a weighted keel in it. Uh, and in fact, we have some of those decoys uh, still in the factory also. Uh, those came about sometime in the fifties where, you know, John got the idea. There had been some rubber ones that had been produced that you could blow up and inflate. Yeah. And uh, John got the idea that what if we produced one that was hollow and it was made of, of sort of a plastic shell and let's put a, a keel that runs the length of the decoy to stabilize it in the water. You know, in the past, small weights had been put on the bottom of the bird, but it didn't create the stability to keep that bird upright in all the conditions. And so John Gazalski got the idea to put that that lengthwise keel on a blow molded decoy. And uh, so, th- I mean, there's there's been a number of, of things throughout the years that um, John Gazalski came up, he and, he and his son, uh, Dick, came up with some of the first motion decoys. Mm. He eventually passed away and, and Dick took over the business. Dick was a, a Korean War veteran, his son, and uh, he was a, a stubborn uh, patriot and very, very stubborn about the fact that the product had to be made in the United States of America with American components. And that's a tradition that we carry on to this day. Our paint is manufactured in Oklahoma City and our plastic is manufactured in uh, two facilities in Texas and in Louisiana. Um, it's in a weird way, it's that stubborn commitment to, to being made in America that kept the business open, we think, because, you know, we've seen over the last three years with the global shipping crisis that, uh, it's been very, very difficult for a lot of folks to get decoys into the United States. And though our, our costs have certainly increased, uh, we have raw materials available to us and we have the ability to produce decoys uh, at a time when a lot of other folks in the industry uh, were kind of stuck uh, waiting on shipping containers from China. That's got to be a good feeling to know that you kind of have that you have that edge and benefit of being made in America. 
It is. And, you know, uh, Ben can speak to this better than I can. But when Ben goes to a retailer and says, hey, um, you know, here's our here's our price list and here's the margins. We don't we're, we're not selling the cheapest decoy on the market. Mm. We never wanted to sell the cheapest decoy on the market. We want to sell the best made decoy on the market. Yeah. And we want to sell you a product that you can show up to our factory and, and you can show up at, at 330 when our staff ends their workday. Uh, and you could come in and, and, you know, you can meet Derek Thomas, the general manager who's been there for 28 years. Uh, you can meet Angela Lawson, our paint line supervisor, who's been there for 20 plus years. Uh, you can shake the hands of the people that that made the decoys that you hunt over in the fall. It's not, you know, first time our decoy gets in a boat, it's your boat. I like that. I like that. So what are, since taking over G&H, you know, there's a lot to take on with doing that what are some of the challenges that y'all have faced so far since taking it over ben i'm gonna i'm gonna let you lead that one because you see the challenges from the outside perspective well from a sales perspective there's several that are glaring right up front one we we haven't had that retail presence you know i haven't had dealers distributed all around the u.s like they they may have had in the 90s mm-hmm. so reconnecting with these businesses in some cases, letting them know we're still here. Um, in other cases, trying to, you know, teach them about what we're doing, the new people involved, convince them that we're still fully intending to make the same product, you know, with the same integrity and durability and dependability that we've always made and, and trying to get them to stock it. Um, we have it. We don't currently have a brand new line of products. We, we went in with our product line and trimmed out some items that, well, in my opinion, weren't tough enough or durable enough weren't yeah. holding up to the standard that we we expect at GNH and we have a whole set of products that that are what I say they're what we're good at I mean they're they're gonna hold up like we want them to but they're not brand new and this waterfowl industry has grown and in the last 10 to 15 years there's been some pretty good innovation um, from other companies and so there are some decoys out there that look very realistic mm-hmm. uh, they're painted with very realistic schemes their their bodies anatomically look correct, et cetera. And, and I'm showing some of these places a decoy that they've seen for two or three decades and they are nervous that it won't sell because it's not a brand new item. Now to speak to that, we have plans for new things, but if it's going to wear G and H, it's going to be battle tested. We're going to be able to stand behind it. We're going to be able to, you know, back it a hundred percent and say it's durable and dependable. And you can't do that in a hurry. Yeah. So in six months, <laughs> we haven't been able to do that. Uh, we have plans for that, but Offering what we have, um, the dealers have to look at it and understand that there are still people out there that prefer to buy American when they can. And if it's not on the shelf, they can't buy it. So I'm trying to get them over that hump. Another thing they struggle with is when when things are produced in other parts of the world, often they're produced, you know, much less expensive. Yeah. So those other products are often offered to at a wholesale price with much more margin available for the dealer. And, and our dealers are like everybody else. They're, they're trying to make a living. They've got lights to keep on. They've got bills to pay also. So to be frank about it, they may not make as much money per box of decoys with G&H as they would some of the other brands. And I'm not knocking anybody here. That's just the way it is. Yeah, um, That's not a secret by any means. We're not expecting any of these dealers to carry exclusively G&H. Um, it is nice when some of them recognize that they probably do have a customer base. I mean, you got to understand some of these dealers are small dealers. Mm-hmm. They're in small towns in rural America. They might sell 12 boxes of decoys a year period, no matter whose they are. We're not talking about places with major lot populations a lot of times, but in those communities, you might have a customer that you've had for years and years and years and years. And when they buy something at your store, they expect it to last. They expect it to hold up. They don't want to buy the same thing again next fall unless they're trying to, you know, grow a spread or something. And they really respect and appreciate the opportunity to buy something made in the USA. And that's hard to do. I mean, even in my personal life, I make an effort. You can't always get it done. There, there are not that many things out there that are made in the USA. Yeah. So those are some of the challenges. The other thing we face, a lot of the waterfowlers in the field, and I know this, you know, from both hats I wear, are younger people than me. You know, I'm 40 years old, just like Ray. A lot of these guys are half my age. And although I don't feel old, they look at me like I'm old. And as a 20-year-old, you may never heard of G&H, um, even though your, grand, your your dad did and your grandfather did. Um, 
you may not know who they are or what they're all about. And if you have seen the, the logo or were familiar with it, um, some of them are, are kind of giving us this stigma that we're old fashioned. And, and to Ray and I, we grin about that. We don't mind being old fashioned. Uh, we're, we're out of the uh, stick with what works camp. But if you're going to sell decoys to a bunch of 20 year olds, they have to find a reason that that's what they want. Mm. And when you're not the most inexpensive, you know, you're not the cheapest decoy on the shelf. You're asking them to pay a little bit more for it. They got to figure out why they want to. And so we're having to overcome that hurdle, educate folks on the durability of our product. I'll tell you this, one of my sales strategies, when I walk in a dealer, I'll take a, a Magnum Mallard that is out of the current 2022 production line got it at the factory two months ago. And I'll take another one that I've owned personally for around 15 to 20 years. Couldn't tell you exactly when I got it. I used to buy a box of decoys from GNH about every year, but it's been living in the bottom of my boat. It's been in the lake. It's been in the river. It's been through all kinds of life. And I'll lay both decoys on the counter side by side. You can clearly tell which one has been in the field and which one's brand new. Yeah. But they don't, they don't look that different. It, it's striking how, comparable they are how how well the older decoy has held up and well i'll be nice not everybody's product can do that so you know teaching younger folks about about spending their money once and having gear that will last them and how important of an investment that is um that's that's one of our challenges and i think we're getting it done we've got a breath of fresh air in our marketing you know as a not that long ago i was just a customer at gnh uh, the old website, I won't say non-functional, but it was close. It wasn't attractive. And you although can say they, it was non-functional. The old website was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, and it, it wasn't, uh, it was, it did its job, I guess, but it, you know, modern websites have a lot of capabilities and a lot of tools and they're attractive and they have pictures and GNH has such a cool story mm-hmm. that wasn't really in the old content. And now it is. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big social media person. But we have a we have a much bigger presence there than we had before, and it is amazing how just a just a good picture and a short little paragraph tells so much more of a story. And GNH has so many great things that people want to know about and can be a fan of. Uh, we're doing a lot of those things right, and and it is it's to overcome the challenge of connecting with the younger group, um, reestablishing our place in the industry, teaching our dealers that yes this decoy costs a little more and, and you're going to make a little bit less on it. You have enough customer base that wants it. If you'll, if you'll just bear with us, you might, you might move that with a higher regularity than everything else you stock. So those are some of the challenges on my end Now at the factory personnel, you know, those hurdles, all of that, that that's a under race hat, not mine. Yeah. I, you know, there are a number of, there's been a number of challenges. How do you make an old piece of machinery work again? Mm-hmm. Um, old molds that need work and repair. Um, you know, figuring out how to staff your, you know, your manufacturing capacity in the right way so that you don't create bottlenecks. None of that stuff. Uh, that, that's probably better suited to some sort of business or manufacturing podcast. I'll say the, the to echo what Ben is saying, the the challenges that I think we face right now are are kind of made up. Uh, there are there are these ideas. I had this guy post on social media at the very beginning because, look, we haven't created a new decoy, I believe, since 1996. Okay, We're not ashamed of that. Uh, I, I haven't. I'll tell you, the first time I purchased G&H decoys was well after 1996. Uh, and like Ben, I got to buy in G&H decoys because I was buying cheaper brands or store brands from a couple of large retailers. And at the end of the season, I would take those those that dozen that I bought, or I, I really ended up buying two or three dozen every season, mm-hmm. and about half of them I'd have to discard because they get whole, they get cold, and the plastic got brittle, and they got holes punched in them, or the paint just absolutely didn't last at all, or um, you know they they just didn't do a good job of of standing up. And finally, one year as a gift, I got G and H decoys from my own father in law, who gave them to me as a Christmas gift. And I hunted them the rest of that season. And I thought, man, these are so much more durable than uh, than the decoys that I've been buying before. And I had held off from buying G&H because they were a little bit pricier. But I realized, man, I'm spending money on three dozen decoys every year when I could be buying a dozen every other year. 
because I'm not having to replace 50% of what I buy every year Yeah, because it's cheap and, and poor quality. And I realized if I think about this in, in the long term, uh, you know, and at that point, I had, by the time I started to figure that out, I was a father and I had kids and I didn't just have money to throw around at decoys every single year. I realized, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to pay more when I make those GNH purchases. But in the long run, these things are going to last me a whole lot longer uh, than the than the cheap stuff did. And uh, I, I still have those original GNH decoys. In fact, I was piddling with them in my my shop here about 30 minutes before the, the we started recording the podcast. But uh, there's this perception that you have to have new stuff every single year. Yeah. And I think that's kind of a made up perception. And I think, of, of course, I would love to sell, you know, if you think about it, GNH is kind of a self-defeating product, right? You buy the thing, it lasts as long as it does. You don't mm-hmm. have to go back to GNH next year and buy a whole boatload more. We understand that. We're okay with it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's this perception that you've got to buy new every single year. And if you don't have new every single year, you won't kill birds. You'll kill birds. I don't think I've bought new decoys in four seasons. Wow. I certainly killed birds last year. Yeah. I think Ben can speak to the same. I've seen Ben spread in his shop. He's got old decoys. I had this guy, anyway, I had this guy that posted on social media a few months ago. And he said, uh, I demand, uh, you know, I demand high quality and excellent detail because I hunt pressured mallards on public land. And I thought, okay, let's, let's break this down. First of all, the ducks that land on public land are the same ducks that land at the duck club. Yeah. The thing has wings and he can fly. Mm-hmm. Number, one. <laughs> Number two, when you stand away from, and, and Ben has taught Ben and I had conversations about this before, because as a game warden, you know, he's sometimes snooping in the bushes and watching the guy through binoculars while he, you know, let him shoot six or eight birds before he'll drive the boat up and go check him. When you're standing at, at 50 yards, even you can't see the minute level of, of detail, the difference between brand new decoys and decoys that have three or four seasons worth of wear on them. Uh, and my idea is if the bird is close enough to see that level of detail, he ought to be dead. All right, y'all, we're going to interrupt this podcast real quick for a quick word from our sponsors. The Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Lacrosse Footwear, innovating boots that endure with you through every adventure, now and forever forward. The Hunt Stand Podcast is also brought to you by Springfield Armory and Winchester. And finally, the Hunt Stand Podcast is brought to you by Yamaha and its full line of class-defining, adventure-seeking motorcycles, ATVs, and side-by-side vehicles. All right, y'all. We're going to get back to this episode of the Hunt Stand Podcast. Yeah, that's true. He ought to be. If you're doing your job and that bird comes down, wings cupped, feet down, and he's going to land, if if the bird is at the point of saying, oh, these are not brand new decoys, you ought to be able to kill him by that point. Uh, if if you're flaring birds with your decoys, you might ask yourself, is it my decoys or is it the way I'm building my blind? Or is it the way I'm uh, setting my spread up? Or is it, do I not have myself set up to the wind correctly? Uh, if, you, if you're not asking yourself those questions, and look, and I'm not trying to bag on, on younger guys, but I made a lot of mistakes in the first few seasons that I was hunting, mm-hmm. hunting ducks. I'm, I, you know, you leave a, a Walmart sack that had your muffins in it, a white Walmart sack that had your muffins in it sitting outside the blind. You're not going to shoot ducks all morning long, no matter how good your decoys are. Uh, so I, I think what happens is there's, there's this made up perception. And I think it exists amongst younger hunters that it's the decoys. The, the decoys are the only thing that's, that's pulling the duck in. And uh, if I'm not shooting birds, it's because of my decoys. And a lot of younger guys are ignoring the fact that they're standing up in the blind while birds are working. Or they've got this bare white face, you know, facing into the sun with a bunch of shine on it. Or, you know, a number of different factors. So I think we when we face these challenges, and I think the older guys get it because the older guys have made those mistakes and they've gone through those experiences and they've realized, Oh, wait a minute. I got to collect that Walmart sack that's outside the blind or I'm going to flare birds. And uh, so I I think there's kind of this perception amongst the younger guys that you always got to have the newest, the fastest, the sleekest, and you got to have new every single year. Uh, And I don't know that that don't know that that necessarily kills birds, but breaking people of that perception is, is tough. Uh, and persuading people, you know, this, this is the message that we're sort of trying to preach is don't buy decoys every season, buy good decoys that last 
and and then have those decoys that you can pass on to the next generation because we hear this all the time from people all the time people if you want to buy some every season uh great great yeah but let's let's work on building our spread you know let's let's buy some mallards this year and then you know next year if we if we just enjoy buying new decoys then then buy some uh scop or buy some redheads or or start to grow a diver spread or work on work on some specialty animals you know get get a pintail or a widgeon or something work on some full bodies i mean i like to buy new decoys i like to play with new gear but i hate having to right i don't i don't want to replace something now occasionally my buddies are going to send holes through them (laughs) shooting true shooting at a bird that dropped a little lower that's true and uh, so you you there's a replacement that's that's always going to be there um Ray's absolutely right. And and I think it goes back to human nature to some extent, especially men. A lot of this sport is, is men. Mm. Uh, we're, we're excuse makers. You know, our football team didn't win because that guy dropped the ball or this coach needs to be fired. Same thing happens in the marsh. The ducks didn't land with me. I'm looking for something to point a finger at. And, uh, you know, I've spent a lot of times in the evenings in, in marshes and places watching wild birds and it's not uncommon for a flock of birds entering a new area to circle and circle and circle, almost set down with live ducks and flare up at the last moment, flare around and then fly off and land somewhere entirely different. Now, if you're in the blind and that happens in front of your spread, you're looking for something to blame it on. Uh, but these birds, especially here in the South, you're in Texas, we're in Oklahoma. By the time they get here, Somebody's been picking on them for three or four months. Oh, yeah. So they're awful goosey. And in Ray's right, it's the same duck, whether he's flying over the private marsh that's the perfect, you know, managed area with low pressure, or it's the high pressure public area that's got 60 trucks in the parking lot. That duck has learned to be spooky by that time of year. So I, I do. I've seen ducks flare on something we did. Somebody moved their head, somebody's dog broke. There was something glaring that they could see that that alarmed them. That that's a fact. But it's also a fact that they are just generally goosey sometimes, and they they might be giving you a reaction, and you're giving an excuse to that, or you're making some kind of justification in your mind that's just simply inaccurate. Yeah. I, I know enough people through every hat I wear that are absolutely as successful as it gets as waterfowl hunters, and in that in that group of, I think there's about ten of people I put on that list. I think they could harvest ducks year in year out. Pick a state in this country, and it wouldn't matter which brand of decoys they carry. Some folks have just figured out enough about the game, enough about the weather, enough about tactics. They've got enough experience. They can go out there and beat duck hunters and get ducks, period. So that's just my two cents. I I know we're not doing this podcast to teach everybody how to be successful harvesting ducks, but what I, I do believe that. And so my opinion you might as well carry gear you enjoy using. Yeah, uh, you, you appreciate where your money went when you spent it. Uh, mm-hmm. Those kinds of things. I I wear an old goofy hat because I like it. It's a lucky you know, hat, I, man. It's my lucky hat. I, I wear a I wear a duck call that doesn't sound near as good as some of these top quality duck calls that that uh, some of these companies are making. I, I carry it because my brother in law gave it to me for Christmas. You know, I mean. It doesn't. Some of these things we give them way more credit than they've really earned, and that's that's just the nature of men, in my my opinion. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So one one of the things I want to kind of go down next is something I saw that y'all had in y'all's booth at BHA, and that's these boats that y'all have taken over or making. I, I'm I'm not really exactly sure the story behind it, but tell us about these duck boats that y'all are behind now. So I, I got started with, I had, I had seen these boats. In fact, uh, the, the buddy that, that had the idea with me to buy GNH, Joe Licata, uh, and he's one of the owners of the business also, he saw these boats somewhere and he said, oh my gosh, he and I, he and I have been hunting together. We've, we've known each other since we were seven years old. Yeah. We hunt and or fish together multiple times a year, defies the fact that we live in different states. Mm. And we, we, in fact, as a joke, we started calling ourselves the Expedition Society. <laughs> Uh, and so we, we had this incident where we got run over in the intercoastal waterway in my canoe by uh, a guy in a big old boat trying to get into a place called Lighthouse Lakes. You know where Lighthouse Lakes is there in Texas. Oh, yeah. And uh, we're trying to go fish Lighthouse Lakes. We got run over by a guy in a big old center console in the intercoastal. And we thought, man, we got to step up our boat game. So we started looking for, for boats. And Joe found this boat called uh, Hog Island, 
Hug Island Boat Works, and, and the boat is called the Shallow Water Assassin. It's a 16-foot-long skiff, and it's roto-molded the same way that a Yeti cooler is. And he said, man, this is the coolest thing in the world. we got to get one of these. And I thought, plastic boat, okay. <laughs> and then I saw one in person for the first time, and I thought, well, wait a minute. I was I was wrong about this. It's not just pure plastic. It's got a foam core inside of it. It's got these plastic stays built into the bottom of it to provide rigidity for it. It doesn't weigh more than an aluminum boat weighs, but it's infinitely more durable than an aluminum or a fiberglass boat. And I thought, okay, this is, this is cool. So it took me a while to find one uh, because they were just, they were difficult to find. They were super popular. They were sold out before the dealers had them. And I finally got one from a guy uh, to use as a fishing boat. And Joe and I fished out of it. Mine has a polling platform on it. It also has, you know, it's kind of like a Swiss army knife of boats. You can put accessories on it. Yeah. It has oar locks. It has a polling platform. I've got a prop on it, but a lot of guys run jet motors on them. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought this man, this boat is super cool. And I started kind of kitting it out to duck hunt out of because, you know, my boys are old enough to hunt with me now. Uh, hunting out of a boat with kids is, is pretty easy because you don't have to worry about, you know, kids getting stuck in the mud and you can stay a little drier and a little cleaner. So I called the owner of the company that had helped me find the, the boat. And uh, I said, hey, man, great boat. His name is John St. John. I said, John, when does the uh, when is the duck hunting edition of the Hog Island Shallow Water Assassin come out? Cause this is a great, it's a better duck boat than it is fishing boat. And he said, man, I, I haven't made one of these in, you know, I haven't duck hunted in 20 years. I've never made one to be a duck boat. And he said, why don't you come up with the duck hunting accessories and do it yourself there at G and H. So done. Uh, then I realized that Ben half is the, the duck boat hunter of all duck boat hunters. Mm. He has at home, at his house, he has the most custom duck boat you've ever seen in your entire life. N name a thing. Ben's boat has it. It has a stove. It has a sink. <laughs> it has a sofa. It has a television. It's got a satellite dish. Uh, kidding, he's right? got everything here. And uh, so I, I went to Ben and I said, Ben, we got to figure out how to take this hull and turn this this hull into the ultimate duck hunting machine. What? You're kidding, right? Like you, you actually have a couch under? I exaggerated a little bit. The, he the, doesn't the sofa. The sofa's sofa's a little over the top. Okay, it's a with, futon. With, the, but with the the modern streaming on these phones, the television is and, and had to be able to do that. That's not a problem. Uh, I don't usually do that. I'm looking at ducks, but but that's not hard. Um, that that would be plug and play as far as that goes. <laughs> so let's back up. If you're gonna duck hunt, you need a boat. And yeah. some if you're gonna if you're gonna take on this endeavor, I'm not saying you can't duck hunt without it. That's not accurate. But if you're gonna become a full blown duck hunter at some point in your career you're going to end up using a boat that mm. uh, the gear is heavy. Um, you will often find yourself wanting to travel a little further with heavy gear. You're walking in unconsolidated soil. So uh, a boat, if you're not using a boat in a lot of ways, you're just swimming upstream. I mean, you're just making it more difficult than it is. It's kind of like elk hunting without mules. There's a point where it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. So um, boats are part of duck hunting always have been always will be. When Ray introduced me, to the hog island boat i had never heard of one i'm a pretty avid fisherman too but i hadn't really looked into skiffs at all um I, i've seen them when i've been around places where they're used but i just wasn't a fan i didn't know much about them mm -hmm. so he introduced me to this little boat and i'm thinking you know that is a pretty cool boat and like he described his a setup for fishing so just around the table we started discussing what features about that boat we would need to maximize what we would need to create what we would need to take it that way it would function very well for duck hunters. And again, my experience in the law enforcement role has has led me to contacting maybe more duck hunters than than, than anybody else. I mean, game wardens are out there checking licenses. They're in the marsh. They're they're going to these blinds. Yeah. And so I see, and in this area I'm in, I'm there are places around the country that they duck hunt as much, maybe more, but we're definitely in that top tier of high use right here where we live. So I I, I just have a lot of experience understanding how duck hunters use gear and what they do with it. And although they're not all the same, there are some common things. And so we, we had a lot of information going in about what the boat needed to do, how it needed to, you know, serve, serve those hunters, what features about it would make sense. Yeah. And, and we got most of that done. We, we, we kind of made a plan. We, we had to do some of our own fabrication. We found some partners that were great help and we put together a base package uh, with this boat, with the trailer, a quality trailer, not just the first thing you could find, but something with a big wheel and 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 uh, good bearings where if you needed to burn a thousand miles and go somewhere and hunt, uh, you're not going to be worrying about the tires going down the interstate. 
Um, And and the boat itself has got all of these great attributes that were there before we got there. But, but we, you know, we put our logos on it. That way, when you're going down the road, people know whose boat you got and and we're proud of it. Uh, We put our, our product in it. You know, the base package comes with our decoys. Um, And we, we improved the design on a couple of things to add some storage and add some functionality. So we're very proud of it. There's a link to that on our website. Um, I don't know what, what else you're, curious about with it it is a head turner you saw it right it oh, gets yeah. your attention, and we're proud of that heck i wanted one i saw that i'm like man that thing would work d- well down here in the salt water especially yep. with that tower that ray was talking about mm. yep so what? you know my, my issue was i like i have a variety of interests um kind of my bread and butter here at home for that boat is we've got a, a dynamite striper fishery here in oklahoma in a couple of different rivers and uh, I usually end up, in fact, I'm looking forward to going striper fishing with Ben here because I'm going to make him row a little bit so that I can fish. <laughs> uh, but you can put that thing in the river. You can run it up river and then you mm-hmm. can drift down river. If you get through a stretch that was particularly productive where you thought, man, I know there's a fish in there, but I didn't catch him. Yeah. You can run again and, and kind of row your way down there with the oars and the oar locks on it. Um, my parents live in Houston. I love to go fish the saltwater with my dad uh, and with my brother. I can trailer the boat down to Houston and I can take the Orlox off of it. It's got a polling platform. I've got a good push pull for it. And, uh, I can, you know, put my dad on a, on a seat that attaches to the front of the boat. Yeah. And you know, he's old and he's got multiple sclerosis and he can sit on that seat and cast to the fish all day long. And I can pull him around and it's, it's not a technical polling skiff. It's also not a drift boat. Mm-hmm. It's also not uh, a bass boat, but it can do all of the things that you can do with those boats pretty well. And it can duck hunt too. And so for a guy like me with kids, you know, I've always got one of my kids with me, usually very rare that I get an opportunity to go out and, and, uh, hunt on my hunter fish on my own. It's safe with my kids. And I don't have a wife that's going to let me go buy four boats. I'm not going to get to own a duck boat and a, and a polling skiff and a bass boat. Um, but you know, and I mean, a come, drift on. Boat. come on. Yeah, we're not there yet, <laughs> but, uh, but that one boat, I can get all of it done with one boat. So, you know, Joe, Joe Lakata and I kind of started jokingly call it the dad boat. Cause it's a great boat for, for, you know, dads, you got to take your kids out. Uh, it's safe for your kids. Your wife's not going to let you own four boats. Great. Go buy this one boat and it'll still allow you to access all the pursuits that you want to, that you want to access. So that's, that's like why it. we like it. It's a, it's a utility player. Uh, it's, it's there to do almost anything you want to do with it. Mm. And, you know, there's a lot of guys that have a duck boat and they have it all kitted up with a blind and everything like that. We've got a a blind built. We partnered with, with pop-up blind company and we built this really cool blind, uh, that you can be completely concealed inside of. You can hit a lever and the blind pops open so you can shoot the birds. Uh, and at the end of the season, because of the way that that hull is built, you can completely detach all your duck hunting accessories. You can mount your trolling motor on it. You can, you can put your, your pedestal sit, seat up on the front of it and you can go bass and crappie fish with it through the rest of the summer. And you don't, it's, it's one platform for all your pursuits. I like it. Awesome. Well, guys, tell me before we go here, I know we're running out of time. Tell me about what the goal, what some goals are that y'all have some things that are coming down the pipeline for GNH decoys that we can expect to see. Yeah. Great, great question. So item number one is uh, here very, very soon. You're going to see uh, the first new product that GNH has come out with since 1996. Okay. Um, we're taking our existing decoys, and this is a little bit inside baseball. We haven't done any press or any any marketing on this yet. Gotcha. Uh, so fresh, fresh uh, exclusive here. First ones to hear uh, for Will Cooper on the Hunt Stand podcast. But uh, we've got some new product that's going to be coming out. We're taking our existing decoys. We've partnered with a third generation decoy carver. He's going to take our existing bodies and come up with some fresh paint schemes, mm-hmm. uh, kind of a new look on some of our products. Okay. Uh, eventually, later this year, we're going to have a new line, new carvings completely, new decoys uh, that'll be produced. Sweet. And uh, so those are kind of the the two the two things coming down the pipe. Uh, the boat project is going to continue to grow. Uh, ben is is working on that boat project on an ongoing basis. Uh, we've we've sold one here recently. Uh, that had some unique items that they wanted to add to it. So we think there's still some room for expansion with how we developed the boat project. Um, I guess I guess one thing to mention is that uh, the weekend of October 7th, 8th, and 9th, we are hosting the first annual 
we hope it's going to become annual, the first annual Oklahoma Waterfowl Heritage Festival and State Calling Championship at our factory. Uh, so we've, we've partnered with the Oklahoma Wildlife Department, with the Oklahoma Wildlife Conservation Foundation, uh, and we're going to have a, we think, two and a half day event there uh, at the factory. It'll be an expo for outfitters, for call makers, for uh, camouflage companies, for whoever wants to come out. Uh, you know, all, all comers are welcome. And uh, it's going to be an expo. There's going to be a calling contest component to it. And then uh, folks at our organization who are particularly talented, like Ben Half and Carlos Gomez, are going to do a little bit of seminar work. Uh, we're going to have a, a little bit of a, a very small dog trial there. Uh, so your dog can come out and show his skills. We're going to have barbecue trucks there. Uh, we're going to have live music and we're going to have uh, cold beer. We've got our own beer now, the Henrietta. It's brewed for us by Marshall Brewing in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Which is really good because y'all brought some to BHA. I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yes. Um, but uh, so that's that's coming down the pipe. Uh, and then one of the other things that we're going to do is uh, Saturdays during waterfowl season, uh, when there's an open waterfowl season in the state of Oklahoma, our factory showroom is going to be open starting at noon. Uh, we're going to have uh, we're, we're getting the paperwork done so that we can serve you cold beer there, maybe have a taco truck there, and uh, you can show up, bring your dog, bring your boat, show off your banded bird, uh, come drink a beer with us, and and tell stories and and have a good time. Uh, so all those things are are coming down the pipe. What else, Ben? What else have I missed or or not mentioned? No, I. I from being the sales guy, I would, I would like to say, you know, we're, we're optimistic that we're trying to get this product on the shelf in your hometown, wherever you are, wherever you buy your waiters, wherever you buy your shotgun, wherever you grab shells. Uh, we want to get G and H back in there. Sweet. I love it guys. Well, man, I really appreciate y'all just taking the time to talk about the decoy company, everything y'all are doing, everything that's coming. And I think it's a really cool story that a lot of people need to hear. And I'm going to be super happy and excited to share this with everybody. So guys, Appreciate y'all hopping on today. You bet. Thank you. All right, everybody. There you go. Another into another hunt stand podcast episode. Make sure you check out G and H decoys. If you're a big waterfowl guy or gal, and that's what you love to do, make sure you head on over to their website. I have that link down in the description below for you to check out. So that way you can go over and get yourself some new decoys that you won't ever have to worry about again. So again, we just want to thank fellas from over at G and H decoys from hopping on with us today and just, to talk and go down some rabbit holes. And we just want to thank y'all for tuning in to the Hunt Stand Podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv on mondays head offshore with captain scott walker and steve roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures coming to me coming to me coming to me double he's jumping he's jumping he's jumping oh, oh. Look at that don't miss mondays with into the blue brought to you by academy sports and outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m eastern tell a few fish stories along the way on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment